0: 14 people shot and killed at a university in Prague. The lead starts right now. Terrifying scenes in the Czech Republic's capital city, a gunman's deadly rampage, killing his father, then targeting a school. You see these students left hiding outside on the ledge of a building. What we're learning at this hour about this rare type of attack for Europe. Plus, all eyes on the U.S. Supreme Court as Special Counsel Jack Smith pushes back today against Team Trump. Will the justices weigh in on whether or not Trump has immunity before Christmas? But first, a new low for Rudy Giuliani filing for bankruptcy today. His list of people he's trying to skip out on paying includes, how about this, Hunter Biden. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our Law and Justice lead. And Rudy Giuliani facing the steep cost of his campaign of lies and disinformation in service of Donald Trump. If you thought Mr. Giuliani's lowest point came outside four seasons total landscaping, so just north the of the Tacony palmyra Bridge, or perhaps that infamous hair-dye drip press conference. Oof, I forgot how bad that was. Well, anyway, if you thought those were the low points, think again. Today, the former New York City mayor filed for bankruptcy in federal court. This is less than a week after a jury ordered him to pay nearly $150 million to two f- former Georgia election workers for defamation. This is the latest embarrassing chapter in the spectacular fall from grace for Time Magazine's Person of the Year 2001. And it's a move that Giuliani's lawyer said should surprise no one. That settlement to Ruby Friedman and Shea Moss is not his only financial headache, after all. According to the bankruptcy filing, Giuliani has nearly a million dollars in unpaid taxes, He owes his lawyers and accountants hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he still faces a number of upcoming defamation cases, ones that have not even yet gone to trial. Let's get straight to CNN's Caitlin Poland. So Caitlin, now that Giuliani has filed for bankruptcy, will any of these people get paid?
1: Um, That is
2: going to be remaining to be seen because in this sort of situation, he's filing for Chapter 11. So he's going to be able to try and restructure his debts and have... His assets doled out. There are liens already filed on some of his properties. The IRS had filed for a lien previously. But one of the things that is so important to look at when you're thinking about this is he's filing for bankruptcy. He's laying out all of these debts that he has, the almost $2 million for lawyers and consultants in the past, uh, almost $1 million in taxes. That all pales in comparison to what he now owes Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss for the defamation for what happened last week at trial, that jury verdict, and that is the sort of thing he can go to the bankruptcy court and ask the judge, please discharge this debt, but he's already agreed in that case as part of the final judgment that it's it was malicious, and that is the sort of debt you can't get rid of through bankruptcy, and so he's going to be indebted to them very likely after some court proceedings for the rest of his life.
0: And and we mentioned uh, these other defamation lawsuits that are still pending against him. Um, What are they? And could that mean he's going to actually owe even more money?
2: It very well could. And Jake, you won't be surprised. There are three of them related to other statements he was making after the 2020 election when he was working on behalf of Donald Trump. So he clearly had that defamation case that he lost uh, with Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the two Georgia election workers. But there's also someone who worked for one of the voting machine companies that's been suing him. There are the two voting machine companies that have major lawsuits that are progressing steadily in court, Dominion and Smartmatic. Those are ongoing, could result in additional major findings against Giuliani if they go the same way as the Freeman and Moss case. And then on top of that, there are other lawsuits some of them are just your grab bag lawsuits, a grocery store employee uh, suing him for an altercation that they had where the grocery store employee was arrested, a former employee suing him for harassment. And then Hunter Biden, you mentioned, that is a lawsuit that is in a very early stage. We have no idea if Giuliani's going to end up hunter- owing Hunter Biden money, but it is a lawsuit out there. And so he does have to disclose it in his bankruptcy now in case it gets to the point where he owes more money later.
0: We don't know if he's going to end up paying Hunter Biden money. We know that he tells a lot of lies and defames a lot of people. And we've seen, we've seen courts come to that conclusion. Caitlin Polans, thanks so much. Let's bring in Ken Friedman. He served as a spokesman for Rudy Giuliani's 1993 mayoral campaign. Also with us is Jared uh, Jared Elias, a bankruptcy professor at at Harvard Law School. Jared, um, help me understand this, um, because I am not an expert uh, on bankruptcy, and I'm guessing most of our viewers are not. Put this, into, PUT THIS INTO CONTEXT, HOW BIG OF A DEAL IS IT FOR SOMEBODY, ESPECIALLY SOMEBODY OF RUDY GIULIANI'S STATURE, WHO WAS ONCE WORTH A LOT OF MONEY AS THE you know, FOUNDING PART OF BRACEWELL, GIULIANI, ET CETERA, to, TO FILE BANKRUPTCY, HOW BIG A DEAL IS THAT?
3: WELL, it, IT'S UNUSUAL, IT'S NOT UNHEARD OF, BUT IT'S UNUSUAL FOR SOMEONE WHO IS AS RICH AS HE ONCE WAS TO END UP NEEDING BANKRUPTCY PROTECTION, ESPECIALLY TO NEED BANKRUPTCY PROTECTION FOR THIS TYPE OF LITIGATION. And Ken, uh, as somebody who used to work
0: for and admire Rudy Giuliani, what goes through your mind as you watch this, this man for whom he used to work now having to file bankruptcy because he can't stop lying?
4: Well, my first thought is, it, his lawyer is correct. It doesn't come as a surprise. Um, after the judge uh, ruled that he has to begin paying uh, Mawson Freeman immediately, no coincidence that he filed for for bankruptcy the next day. Um, Caitlin is is right. that damages and the law prof, uh, bankruptcy professor certainly can speak to this. But damage awards for uh, intentional misconduct are not entitled to a bankruptcy protection, um, or reduced or dis- dis- discharged. Um, he owes Uncle Sam first. Uh, a million or, or more dollars, uh, the federal government and the state government for unpaid taxes. Um, after that, the secured creditors will be compensated from the remaining assets uh, that Rudy that's determined that Rudy has. He says he has between one and, and $10 million um, uh, in, 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 in assets. Um, the, the funny thing about all this is that he never cared about money. Uh, that is until he started making big money and then, and, and then he married a very expensive, uh, expensive third ex-wife.
0: Right. Um, and, and Jared, um, part of the final judgment in the 2020 election defamation case uh, against Giuliani included his, his acknowledgement that he defamed uh, Ruby Moss and, and Shea Freeman. Uh, or, I'm sorry, Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. That he defa- that he defamed them with malice. That obviously makes it harder for him to escape that debt. What happens? Uh, it, does does the government just come and start taking money from his bank account after the million dollars that he owes in taxes has already been settled? I mean, he obviously we just saw pictures of him. He's wearing expensive suits, expensive ties. He's driving. You know, he's riding in a limo. I mean, this is not a man. You know, outside uh, wearing a barrel.
3: No in the bankruptcy petition, he says he has between one and $10 million worth of assets. So he's not indigent. And as you, as you mentioned, there are other signs that he in fact might have resources. So what's gonna happen here is that the judge will hold a hearing to, to confirm that this debt can't be discharged, which means that you can't ask the bankruptcy judge to release you from the amount of money that he owes for the election defamation claims as well as some of the others. Um, and you know, if that's true, which you know, it, it most likely is, um, then at some point he will leave bankruptcy um, and he'll have to start paying some amount of money, if he has any, um, to the, all of the people who are suing him. But he can't use the bankruptcy process to get out of this debt. And, and Ken,
0: do you think Giuliani would have gone down this path um, of election lies, crazy conspiracy theories, um, seemingly mindless decisions to keep repeating these lies even after he's been found guilty and uh, liable uh, if it weren't for Donald Trump. And what is this hold that Donald Trump has over him, do you think?
4: Probably not to answer your question. And uh, you know, they're they're attached to the hip now.
0: Um, Except Trump know, won't pay his bills. Trump, is worried Trump won't pay his legal Trump bills, won't Trump right?
4: Pay, right. But, but, but Trump has, he held a fundraiser, didn't raise much money, as you know. Um, and because he's worried that Rudy will flip on him. All right. But he's not going to pay a one hundred and forty eight million dollar judgment. And speaking of judgment, I think that's where Rudy went wrong. You know, people still ask me what happened to him. His judgment uh, has been eroded, uh, uh, you know, by 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 money, by renewed relevance, uh, uh, alcohol, possibly ambient, possibly and and direct access to the White House. It's been an intoxicating, seductive brew for Giuliani.
0: Um, and addictive. Yeah. I mean, the, the Ambien uh, is an interesting uh, wrinkle we'll have to follow up more on yeah. um, investigatively. Yeah. J- Jared, will Giuliani, I mean, Giuliani's is not staying at the YMCA. Is he ultimately going to have to sell the properties he owns and move to some sort of more modest housing?
3: Um, it, it, really depends on a lot of things like, you know, what exactly does he turn out to own? Um, you know, it, it's hard to say right now exactly where this is all headed. Um, more than likely what will happen instead is somehow he's going to be living somewhere. It won't quite be clear how he's going to get sued, um, by the plaintiffs, you know, kind of like OJ Simpson has experienced with Ron Goldman over the years. Um, I, I think that is the more likely outcome that he's going to move to the YMCA.
0: Yeah. All right. Ken Friedman and Jared Elias, uh, thank you so much. Uh, go inside. Rudy Giuliani's rise and dramatic fall in the CNN original series. Giuliani, what happened to America's mayor? Ken uh, helped us uh, with that series, with that special. The series airs this Saturday night at 8 Eastern, only here on CNN. And man, oh, the hell, the mighty have fallen. Coming up next, that horrific scene earlier today in Prague, in the Czech Republic. At least 14 innocent people killed, 25 others injured. A mass shooting that left people hiding on a building ledge. The terrifying scene. That's next. In our world, lead a deadly mass shooting today at a university in Prague. Czech police say a shooter killed at least 14 people and wounded 25 others at Charles University. It's one of the Czech Republic's worst mass shootings in decades. Let's get right to CNN's Melissa Bell. Melissa, what are we learning about the victims?
1: Well, this was a busy campus, at part of the town of Czech, of the Czech Republic's main city center inside Prague. Very touristy people uh, milling around. Lots of students, of course. We don't know exactly uh, the uh, occupations, the ages, the exact names of the victims. We do know there were at least 14 people killed. But given as this was in a busy university, we assume, sadly, that many of them were students and what we're talking about were extremely violent scenes earlier. And images, frankly, Jake, that we're fairly used to seeing in the United States, much less so on the European uh, continent. Images of students uh, hiding and cowering on a ledge uh, several stories up a building to try and stay away from the shooter's fire but also uh, images of students barricading themselves inside uh, these rooms in the university campus as this active shooting situation continued. We had the chance to speak to one of them just a short while ago. Here's what Jacob Wiseman had to tell CNN about what he'd seen.
5: Um, So it was just me and my professor um, during when I was taking the exam. And uh, so we barricaded the door and we we locked the door to make sure that, you know, there was no way for the shooter to come in because he was going through um, different classrooms. He was inside until he could do what he was trying to do. And, um, yeah, so thankfully, like, we locked the door in time and he was not able to open our door.
1: Terrifying scenes for all of those students inside the Faculty of Arts, inside Charles University. Again, uh, Jake, in a city on a continent where these kinds of mass shootings are extremely few and far between.
0: Melissa, right before the suspect was on campus, we understand he allegedly killed his father.
1: That's right. We've been getting a clearer image of exactly who this young man is, a 24-year-old philosophy student who was enrolled at the university where he carried out his rampage. And what the police have said is that they understand that uh, they found his father dead, believe that he may have killed him before heading off to the university uh, to take on his fellow university students. Now, the police, Jake, had been tipped off that he was armed and wanting to kill himself. They had gone to the university, entirely evacuated the building in which this young man, uh, this 24 year old student was due to have a lecture, it is in fact in another part of the campus that he struck uh, with this terrible loss of life resulting in that.
0: The student had no criminal record, we understand, but obviously he had access to weapons.
1: Well, the Czech Republic is an unusual European country insofar as, for its very small size, it has a relatively high per capita possession of firearms. It's a relatively liberal uh, uh, weapons law that they have. This young man had a permit. He had access to several firearms, but no criminal record. There was no reason for him to be on the police's radar. And yet what we're hearing is that they now believe he may have been responsible, Jake, for a double homicide only last week, in which a man and his young baby were killed, Jake.
0: All right, Melissa Bell, thank you so much for that update. Next to Israel where hopes for a new hostage deal may now be off. Talks shut down by Hamas. Plus, a look inside hospitals in Gaza and what is described as unbearable conditions. Stay with us.
6: This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or
0: sleepnumber.com. And we're back with our world lead, just as hopes had been reignited briefly for a new hostage deal... Hamas has seemingly snuffed those hopes out. Hamas says there will be no talks about prisoner exchanges until Israel completely ends its military operation in Gaza. Jeremy Diamond's live in Tel Aviv for us, and CNN's Alex Walmart is here in the studio. Jeremy, uh, today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared, quote, We will not stop the war until we achieve all of its goals, completing the elimination of Hamas and releasing all of our hostages, unquote. Are, Are there any indications that Israel will move to a lower intensity phase? of the war and anytime soon as the White House has requested if not demanded behind the scenes.
5: Well, there are certainly no public indications to that effect. In fact, Israel's military campaign is proceeding full steam ahead. They are working to dismantle the last remaining Hamas strongholds in northern Gaza and adding thousands more troops to their offensive in southern Gaza, deep into the city of Khan Yunus. Publicly, officials like Netanyahu are vowing that there is no end in sight to this war. But privately, I can tell you from speaking with several senior Israeli officials, there is at least an acknowledgement and an understanding that they will indeed need to move to transition this war effort at some point. Exactly when that happens isn't clear. One senior Israeli official told me that it would not be long, uh, but exactly what long means for them versus for the Americans may be two different things. One other thing that Israeli officials are really emphasizing is that while the Americans would like to see a set date for that transition to happen, Israeli officials are not going to uh, allow that. They keep on emphasizing the fact that conditions on the ground will dictate when they can ratchet down this campaign. And they are also emphasizing that just as much as they can ratchet it down, they can also ratchet it back up. Right,
0: Alex, the United States uh, still has major concerns Uh, over the United Nations draft resolution on Gaza that keeps getting delayed. Uh, The U.S. thinks the way the draft is worded could lead to delays in humanitarian assistance. Uh, Explain that. And what else is is hanging up the, the U.S.?
7: This is a resolution that is focused on aid rather than on calling for an immediate ceasefire. And we're told both publicly and privately that what is being pushed for by several Arab countries, including the UAE and Egypt, is a un monitored mechanism for aid going into Gaza. Now, that sounds pretty good, United Nations monitoring aid going into Gaza. Um, but the US is arguing that that would actually add a layer of, of, uh, of it, that make it more complicated, it would slow it down, it yeah. would be more cumbersome. And so the, the US is really pushing for you know, the, the aid to get in as, as quickly as possible. There's also the question of the, the fighting and, and what this resolution calls for. Um, initially in the earlier draft, Um, I'm told that uh, they were calling for an urgent cessation of hostilities, which is not what the U.S. wants, certainly not what Israel wants. And and I'm told that they're they're working on on watering down that language to a place where the U.S. and Israel are happy. The focus really is, however, on this mechanism. Uh, Once they can figure that out, then that language on the cessation of hostilities, I'm told, will, will get figured out pretty quickly. Jeremy,
0: the IDF says it has uncovered a, quote, substantial, elaborate network of tunnels used by Hamas in in Gaza City, or I should say under Gaza City, um, isn't that the crux uh, of some of the IDF's mission to find and destroy these tunnels? And and could that mean in any way that Israel's mission in Gaza might be approaching an end phase of some sort? Because it will, obviously getting rid of those tunnels will uh, remove some of the threat
5: of Hamas. Well, uncovering these tunnels has certainly been an important part of the Israeli military's mission in Gaza. It's also an important way that they try and demonstrate that they're actually making progress, especially in the eyes of the Israeli public. This latest video filmed by the Israeli military shows uh, a whole underground uh, tunnel complex below the center of Gaza City, Palestine Square, near where there are a number of uh, government buildings, residential buildings as well. The Israeli military uncovered it. They say that Hamas's senior-most leaders, in fact, may have used these tunnels since they were below some of the offices that they use. Uh, and they also say that this was the most expensive and expansive uh, project in uh, Gaza, uh, a construction project in Gaza. Now, there are other ways in which the Israeli military is trying to show progress. They said uh, tonight that they have killed about 2,000 militants in the last three weeks since the end of, this, uh, of that week-long truce between Israel and Hamas, but there is still a lot more that remains to be done. If this kind of underground tunnel complex is being uncovered in northern Gaza, you can be sure that similar tunnels exist in southern Gaza, and the Israeli military's campaign is certainly not near done in southern Gaza. All right, CNN's Jeremy Diamond in Israel
0: and Alex Marquardt here in studio. Now on to Gaza, where just nine of the 36 hospitals in the war-battered, densely populated strip of land are functioning. Nine, according to the World Health Organization. Now, Israel has said for years that hospitals in Gaza are used by Hamas. Earlier this week, Israel's domestic security agency, the Shin Bet, says that they are investigating the directors of at least two hospitals in northern Gaza – the Shinbad also released an edited video of the interrogation of one of those directors where he admits he is a member of Hamas's military wing along with other members of the medical staff. Uh, even if all of that is true, of course, that does not mean there are not also in those hospitals severely wounded people and doctors and nurses and some of those wounded people are just waiting to die. They're too injured to be transported to a safer location. CNN's Nimba al shows us now scenes inside some of those hospitals. Um, which one WHO official on the ground describes as, quote, unbearable.
8: Airstrike after airstrike after airstrike. In the daily bombardment, Gazans rarely find a reprieve. When the smoke clears, it's back to the daily routine. Searching the rubble hoping for miracles, hoping to find survivors. A journey that leads many to the overflowing morgues. At the European hospital in southern Gaza, there is no relief in identifying the dead. (laughs) Roughly 20,000 people killed in Gaza after 11 weeks of Israeli bombardment, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health in Ramallah. A number CNN can't verify. But U.N. officials say they found the ministry's figures from past conflicts to be accurate. A grim landmark. With every lost life, the pain is inconsolable.
6: There is nowhere safe in the whole of the Gaza Strip. My whole family is gone. We are only four people left out of a family of eight.
8: In southern Gaza, the bombs don't stop, nor does the flow of the injured to overwhelmed hospitals disrupting the rare moments of respite where children can play.
9: I was at my aunt's house and we were playing. We saw a big and fast airplane flying over and
8: suddenly it bombed our place and stones fell on me and then people removed me from the rubble. Israel's ground offensive continues across Gaza. Despite the U.S. raising concerns about civilian casualties, it continues to back Israel's war. The UN warns of a toxic mix of disease, hunger and lack of hygiene and sanitation. Outbreaks of infectious disease add to the impossible task of survival. Most of the 2.2 million population is displaced and struggling to find food and clean water. The World Health Organization says there are no functioning hospitals left in northern Gaza. The once-sprawling Al-Ahli hospital complex is barely providing relief.
0: What we found here is a hospital that's really almost completely stopped functioning. Two days ago, uh, a number of staff were detained.
8: Instead of preparing for Christmas, this church has become a hospital ward.
7: But they're not able to perform surgery. They're able to only provide uh, pain management, some wound care, uh,
10: some trauma stabilisation. They're doing their best uh, with a very small team of only about 10 clinical staff left at this hospital.
8: Hours after posting this video of the first aid center at the battered Jabalia camp, the Palestinian Red Crescent said the center was raided and communication was cut off. And yet, the dead and dying just keep coming. CNN, London.
0: And our thanks to Ni'ma for that report. Coming up next, the president of Harvard is making yet more changes to her past work as she faces a growing plagiarism investigation at the university. Plus, just in the sexual battery lawsuit just filed against Fast and Furious star Vin Diesel. Stay with us. Just into the lead in our pop culture lead, actor Vin Diesel has been accused of sexual battery and creating a hostile work environment. That's according to a new lawsuit. Filed by one of his former assistants, CNN's brand new entertainment correspondent, Elizabeth Wagmeister, is here. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, what else does this lawsuit have to say?
11: Hi, Jake. So this lawsuit comes from a former assistant of Vin Diesel and says that back in 2010, during filming of the fifth Fast and Furious movie, that this assistant was in a hotel room with Vin Diesel and that she was trapped. And that is when, according to this lawsuit, she accuses Vin Diesel of forcibly pinning her up against a wall, kissing her and groping her. Now this lawsuit also says that shortly after this alleged incident that she was let go from the company. She is suing not just Vin Diesel, but also his production company. She says that she was let go, which per the lawsuit she believes was in response to this alleged incident.
0: All right, Elizabeth Wagmeister, thank you so much, appreciate it. Turning now to our national lead, Harvard University President Dr. Claudine Gay is going to make additional citation corrections to her past academic work, this time to her 1997 dissertation, which was not part of Harvard's initial independent review of Dr. Gay's published work. Despite the new findings, Harvard is maintaining that Dr. Gay stopped short of research misconduct. Regardless, the scrutiny of both Harvard and President Gay does not appear to be subsiding anytime soon, and Republicans eager to target Dr. Gay have now decided that it is the providence of the House Education Committee to investigate the matter, as CNN's Danny Freeman
12: reports now.
13: Thank you, um, Congresswoman. Harvard
12: University's Power. president, Claudine yeah. Gay, Office. back in the hot seat the after the elite school said it found two more instances of inadequate citation in the embattled president's writings. The latest development coming a week after Harvard's top governing board unanimously stood behind Gay, following intense calls for her to resign over her congressional testimony on anti-Semitism on college campuses.
14: So the answer is yes,
2: that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct. Correct. Again, it depends on the context.
12: Now, a U.S. House committee already investigating anti-Semitism at Harvard says it will also look at the plagiarism allegations. In a new letter to Harvard's highest governing body, the committee's chair cites Harvard's honor code that states, members of the college community must commit themselves to producing academic work of integrity and asks, does Harvard hold its faculty and academic leadership to the same standards? Last week, Gay submitted corrections to a pair of papers she wrote as a professional academic in 2001 and 2017. But a CNN analysis of her writings documented other examples of plagiarism from the 90s when Gay was studying for her PhD at Harvard. Gay's 1997 dissertation lifted one paragraph almost verbatim from another source without citation. Jonathan Bailey is a plagiarism expert. What troubled you about the specific dissertation allegations more than others?
5: That paragraph showed a length of text that clearly could not have been produced any other way than through copying, was not quoted and was not properly cited in the paper. So that's what made me worry about that one.
12: A Harvard spokesperson told CNN in a statement Thursday the university reviewed more of her writings and Gay plans to update her 1997 work to correct these additional instances. Harvard said the inadequate citations were regrettable but were not research misconduct. In a previous statement about the earlier allegations, Gay defended her work, saying, I stand by the integrity of my scholarship. Throughout my career, I have worked to ensure my scholarship adheres to the highest academic standards. The allegations against Gay, who is the first black woman to serve as president of Harvard, have largely originated from conservative activists. But the question persists. Is the school holding its president to the same standard as its
5: students? Plagiarism really exists on a spectrum between completely original writing and completely copied and pasted and trying to pass off someone else's work. And right now, the best we have on Claudine Gay is sitting somewhere in the middle between the two.
12: now, Jake, our expert also noted that, unfortunately, it is not unprecedented for higher education leaders to get caught up in plagiarism scandals. He cited that there have been even some instances of presidents getting caught on the job uh, accused of plagiarism, but he did say that he's never seen before a congressional investigation for this kind of behavior. Jake?
0: All right, Danny Friedman uh, at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Frederick Lawrence, who served as president at Brandeis University as a distinguished at Georgetown Law. Um, first of all, let me just start with, with something that I think is on the, uh, uh, on the mind of a lot of uh, people following this story, uh, which is they think that the story is unfair because it originated with conservative critics of Dr. Gay. And, and, and obviously it's true. A lot of right-wing politicians and activists are targeting her, not because they really care that much about plagiarism or academic uh, integrity. They're targeting her, Uh, because she is a progressive and uh, has brought progressive values or reaffirmed progressive values at Harvard. And also, I'm sure for some of them, because she's black and a woman. How does a university deal with legitimate issues raised by bad faith actors? Does that
15: matter? It matters to a certain extent. I would certainly be skeptical about the intent of what's driving some of these allegations at the same time then the university takes this over does it internally does its own investigation and has to make its own decisions plagiarism is a very very serious matter within a university obviously academic integrity is important for undergraduates or graduate students and obviously from members of the faculty and the administration. So it's an important matter wherever the allegations come from.
0: And I would think at Harvard also you want to have like the highest possible standards when it comes to academic integrity. At the university, you know,
15: considered to be the most prestigious in the world. Every university would care about this and Harvard obviously holds itself to the highest level.
0: So let's read Harvard's guide on sourcing when it comes to plagiarism. It doesn't matter whether the source is a published author, another student, a website without clear authorship, a website that sells academic papers or any other person, taking credit for anyone else's work is stealing. And it is unacceptable in all academic situations, whether you do it intentionally or by accident. Now, in the same guide as their plagiarism policy, students who for whatever reason submit work either not their own or without clear attributions to its sources will be subject to disciplinary action up to and including requirement to withdraw from the college. If I were a Harvard student that had been disciplined three months ago For plagiarism,
15: uh, I would be pretty mad right now. And with good cause. I think the fact is that all of these cases then become highly contextual. How much? When was it done? Was it actually passing off work of somebody else's as your own? That's the kind of thing the internal investigation would do. But clearly, one of the reasons one worries about this from an administrator is that it is a signal to the rest of the community.
0: Well, it's a signal to the rest of the community. And obviously, I've heard anecdotally about a lot of. American institutions of learning uh, not taking uh, plagiarism as seriously since COVID because of, of all the difficulties students faced during that period. But I also just wonder, does it subject the university to any sort of legal uh, potential lawsuits from a student that might have been disciplined and did something that, you know, in, in, in one opinion, isn't as bad as what Dr. Gay is accused of doing.
15: I wouldn't think so. I think if a student is disciplined for a violation of the plagiarism guidelines, uh, that's going to stand on its own merits. The fact that that wasn't done in some other case is not going to be a defense.
0: Plagiarism experts that we spoke with uh, were divided on whether or not uh, her omissions warrant punishment of any kind. None, not one of them, we should note, called for her to be fired. Not right. one of them. Uh, what do you think?
15: I think that it is in that middle ground. It is clearly not passing off a major part of the work as her work. On the other hand, uh, it's not just inadvertent. So this is why it's very hard from the outside to make these decisions, which is why I find myself a little skeptical that there are those who are very ready to tell Harvard how it ought to be handling this. I think Harvard has to give it a close look, and there's every reason to believe that they are. So CNN
0: did a look, took a look at her PhD thesis and found examples of unattributed citations. Um, And Harvard had not. What does that tell you about how thorough their review is if they're not looking at her PhD thesis from when she was at Harvard?
15: It doesn't surprise me. Uh, In a search for a president, you look at the quality of somebody's work overall, but to do the kind of work that one of your investigative reporters probably did, the putting the work next to to other sources, uh, that's not the kind of thing you do in a presidential search.
0: Okay, here's a term that we hear a lot at universities and academic institutions, teachable moment. Is this a possible teachable moment for her to say, look, look, I obviously in some instances was sloppy. And I shouldn't have been, and I should I should have been at a higher standard. And I hope we all can learn from my experience. I mean, it's, it's it's,
15: I, I think it is a teachable moment. You know, it's not just a university story. I mean, you, you know, this network has had issues with plagiarism, uh, and, and other uh, historians, other writers have had issues with plagiarism. Every one of these is an opportunity to say that when you look to somebody else's work. You simply have to give credit for it. No one's saying that you can't use somebody else's work. You right. can't even quote from it, but you have to give credit.
0: Right. And mistakes do happen, obviously. Right. I do wonder how artificial intelligence might make this even more complicated in the future.
15: I think artificial intelligence is going to make this and so many other things more complicated in saying whose work is is what. Um, I, I will say one other piece of this that I find particularly disturbing, however, is that this conversation we're having is about what Harvard ought to do with its allegations of academic integrity violations. None of this is the province of the Congressional Committee on Education. This is a private university. I, I'm, shocked that those who call themselves conservatives and believe in small government would take this as the opportunity to force a national investigation and a national standard on private institutions. That's not how we do business in this country.
0: We've certainly seen some conservative universities have had some problems in recent years. I'm thinking of Liberty University well, that weren't subject to any sort of congressional hearings even though potentially, uh, well, let's just leave it at that. Uh, Frederick right. Lawrence, thank you so much. It would being with you, check? Yeah. Coming up, uh, first here on the lead, incredible views of that volcano erupting in Iceland. CNN's Fred Blyken he took a flight over the eruption zone, and we're going to bring you those pictures next.
14: I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them on Be My Guest, the podcast new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, another man out of prison after yet another wrongful conviction in the United States. If you think you've heard several of these stories recently, you're right. CNN is digging into why. What is leading to so many convictions being overturned recently? Plus, the Republican party in a must-win battleground state described as an incompetent dumpster fire, a party mismanaged in financial debt and bogged down by infighting just weeks before actual voting in the 2024 race begins in that state. And leading this hour, a brand new filing today from Special Counsel Jack Smith, setting up the latest debate before the U.S. Supreme Court. Smith pushing back on a request from Donald Trump and his legal team. Trump wants the court to stay out of a question about whether or not, as former president, he gets immunity in the federal election subversion case against him. The Special Counsel says the Supreme Court needs to get involved, and now, saying in today's new filing, quote, The public interest in a prompt resolution of this case favors an immediate, definitive decision by this court. The charges here are of the utmost gravity. It's just one, just one, Trump-related case before the U.S. Supreme Court right now. We're going to start with CNN legal analyst Kerry Cordero and CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupik. Uh, Joan, uh, what do you make of this urgent request from Jack Smith?
16: Well, he wants to reiterate as strongly as possible, as the justices are considering it at this very moment, the importance of the case, why delay would hurt the situation, hurt the public interest. Not, not so much hurt the government's case as much as hurt the public interest. He says nothing short of democracy is at stake. He really uses the fact that we're dealing with a former president here. He wants to say why he's, Donald Trump is not like any other defendant, why he needs to jump over an appellate court at this point because Donald Trump should have to account for his actions back in 2020. He doesn't mention 2024's election at all. He wants to, he's talking about the imperative of have, being able to hold him accountable. And he just reiterated it and tried to beat back a lot of what Donald Trump's lawyers had said yesterday about there's no reason for haste.
0: And, and uh, Kerry Cordero, Trump yesterday obviously urged the Supreme Court, don't skip over the appeals court process, basically saying, take your time.
9: Well, take your time. This is all about timing. And the appellate court actually has scheduled a hearing on it and has scheduled briefing. So the appellate court in some ways has has expressed an interest in moving promptly because they could take a much longer time. But and from the former president's perspective, of course, he wants to delay as far as possible. He wants the appellate court to take its time so that then he that then would trigger a clock where even though he's going to appeal that no matter what the outcome is, He would take it up to the Supreme Court anyway, but then that gives him more time whether or not to make his appeal. So it would stretch out the timeline and therefore push his trial date, most likely.
0: And Joan, we've also been following this Colorado Supreme Court ruling, which would bar Trump from appearing on the state's uh, ballots in 2024. We're expecting Trump to appeal that uh, ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court as well. Probably next week he'll file that. Is it possible that the court will take up both cases, immunity and the Colorado Supreme Court case and rule on them together,
16: maybe at, during the sort of same time frame, but not in joint opinion. They they're very no, not the a same. joint opinion,
0: but but like re, you know, release both uh, both opinions at the same day.
16: Probably not, but they would be heard simultaneously. First of all, as a threshold matter, both of those cases have to be decided by the Supreme Court. The court would have to be the last word on whether the president can be shielded from a criminal prosecution, which is the the first one we had. But also it's in the court's hands whether the 14th Amendment Section 3 uh, provision that would bar Trump from the Colorado ballot and maybe other ballots in other states. It has to decide that. And the fact that they're coming up together, Jake, might actually in some ways benefit the Supreme Court that isn't thrilled about getting Trump litigation because Trump litigation is always fraught and pulls them into the political muck. But in this case, you know, it, it might give them. A WAY TO FRANKLY RULE IN SOME WAYS THAT WOULD HELP DONALD TRUMP AND OTHER WAYS THAT WOULD NOT. AND YOU KNOW, YOU KNOW HOW JOHN ROBERTS... HE seems-
0: LOVES TO DO THAT. Yeah. HE LOVES TO BE SEEN AS THE GREAT MODERATOR AND, and THEN here, right. he, here HE COULD RULE AGAINST THE COLORADO COURT AND AGAINST right. TRUMP ON THE IMMUNITY QUESTION. CARRIE, WE'RE ALSO HEARING CALLS FOR JUSTICE CLARENCE THOMAS uh, TO RECUSE HIMSELF IF THE COURT DOES TAKE UP uh, THESE JANUARY 6TH RELATED CASES BECAUSE HIS WIFE Ginny THOMAS IS A VERY OUTSPOKEN ELECTION desi- DENIER. And a major influential conservative activist, especially around January 6th. Look at this text message between Ginny Thomas and then-Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows on January 10th, 2021. Help this great president stand firm, Mark. The majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history, unquote. Okay, first of all, that's just nuts. But second of all, that's a Supreme Court justice's wife. Yesterday, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, wrote a letter to Chief Justice Roberts saying, quote, Mrs. Thomas's close interactions with senior Trump administration officials about overturning the 2020 election results, the very subject of the litigation, certainly creates circumstances where Justice Thomas's impartiality might reasonably be questioned. Um, I don't think he's wrong. It's a reasonable question. What well, do you think? And
9: that language is the key language, when the, 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 uh, his impartiality might reasonably be questioned. So it's a subjective judgment, right. and the judgment completely resides with the justice himself. Uh, he is going to have to make, make the own, his own decision about whether or not to recuse from the case. It, my own view is that a reasonable person would look at this, look at uh, you know, for example, the message that you just played, and come to the conclusion that he should recuse. But there's an interesting tension here between this other issue of uh, the appellate court weighing in um, on the case, because if Justice Thomas recuses, then we have an eight-person uh, Supreme Court, right, and, if and you could four to
7: four. potentially
9: have a tie, and so then the appellate level court <laughs> would be the determining. Uh, decision so when the supreme court if the supreme court ever were to tie on something the prior decision is the decision that uh holds so there's an argument why the appellate level court actually should have a view here
0: and also the odds that clarence thomas would recuse himself are zero absolutely zero joan why do you think jack smith wants the court to weigh in so quickly is it because he wants the trial to start in march and he wants us all done before the Republican National Convention, the yeah. Democratic Convention? Yeah. I
16: think I think that the ultimate interest is doing this before we're even mired in another political election controversy. He's not saying that, but clearly uh, November 5th is looming. And, uh, you know, we're already probably past, no, what, no matter what happens, we're past that March 4th deadline that the trial court judge had set. But what he wants... To, uh, to happen is for the Supreme Court to at least resolve this while it 's in its current term, which runs through the end of June because if you if, he, if, if we wait months for whatever could happen in the appellate court because even though the appellate court has expedited the the briefing schedule, you know writing an opinion will take time, yeah. and then the appeal up to the justices will take time, so we 're already deep into spring, if not the summer, when we have the national conventions and then the uh, November election looming.
0: And we should just take a moment to acknowledge, uh, Carrie, these these are important, weighty decisions. The presidential immunity, is a president immune from criminal charges for things he did when he was president? Or, you know, did the president uh, engage in insurrection? Does that make him... Uh, not, you know, not eligible to be president according to the Fourteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. These are serious issues.
9: Absolutely, I mean, these are cases that the former President Trump is involved in, but these are cases about the presidency itself. And that is what all of the courts, the appellate court and the Supreme Court are going to be considering. The Supreme Court of Colorado in its decision said, we are in uncharted territory. We know, we, the Supreme Court of Colorado, know that we are uh, ruling on novel issues of constitutional law. So there is an argument that the courts should be taking their time in conducting a constitutional analysis for the history books, for future presidencies, not just the former president.
0: I wonder how many future presidents these decisions are going to be relevant to. Hopefully not many. Thanks so much to, to for, for sure. both of you for being here, uh, Joan and Kerry. Also in our Law and Justice League today, Rudy Giuliani filed for bankruptcy in federal court. This is just days after a federal jury ordered him to pay nearly $150 million to two former Georgia election workers, whom he defamed. Let's bring in CNN's Kara Now, Kara, what exactly is Rudy claiming in this bankruptcy filing and what does it mean?
11: Well, Rudy Giuliani is claiming that he is saddled with debt as much as $500 million and saying that he only has up to $10 million in assets. So he's trying to delay this payout to these two women. I mean, the largest of his debts in the bankruptcy filing is the nearly $150 million payment to those two Georgia election workers that the jury handed down last week. But we're also learning a little bit more about Giuliani's finances. He also has uh, One million dollars in unpaid taxes to the federal government and to New York State. In addition, 1.7 million dollars in unpaid legal fees to some of the lawyers who represented him in many of the legal issues he's had over the se- past several years, as well as thirty thousand dollars in phone bills. Now, part of this is Giuliani estimating that he's going to face potentially a lot more in either legal fees or damages from court cases because he's facing a number of other lawsuits, including a harassment lawsuit from a former employee. A lawsuit lawsuit seeking $2 million from a grocery worker who says that Giuliani had falsely gotten him arrested, as well as three defamation lawsuits um, all related to the election actions after 2020. So Giuliani facing a lot of potential legal bills here. Now, his lawyers are saying that and a spokesman are saying that the timing of this uh, should not be a surprise to anyone because of the judge ordering yesterday Giuliani to begin these payments to these women. And Giuliani saying that he just doesn't have the money. Jake.
0: Mm. Maybe he shouldn't have told all those lies. Kara, um, the, the two people Giuliani owes the most money to, at least as of right now, the night is still young, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shane Moss, the two Georgia election workers, what was their reaction to this news that he's uh, filed for bankruptcy?
11: So their lawyer is, issued a statement in which he said this maneuver is unsurprising and it will not succeed in discharging Mr. Giuliani's debt to Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. And just as a reminder, they filed a new defamation lawsuit against Giuliani on Monday for repeating many of the same lies that he has already been found to have defamed them for. So, you know, his legal problems are very far from being over there, Jake.
0: All right, Karis Cannell, no, thanks. Coming up next, the hunt for bad actors at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The remarkable new account of a woman using honey traps on the dating app Bumble to track down rioters. Stay with us. Welcome back. We've been talking about two possible big cases in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, the Colorado ruling barring Trump uh, from the state's 2024 ballots because he is an insurrectionist, according to the court, and Donald Trump's immunity case about whether or not he's immune from the fostering of the insurrection because he did it while he was president. There is another, the U.S. Supreme Court saying it will review the obstruction law, which overturned could derail convictions of January 6 rioters or insurrectionists, whatever you want to call them, could deal a blow, of course, to Jack Smith's prosecution of the former president because that's one of the charges. NBC News justice reporter Ryan Riley joins me now. He's the author of a fantastic new book, Sedition Hunters, How January 6 Broke the Justice System. I cannot recommend it. Uh, more highly, I don't have a lot of NBC correspondents on CNN very often, but this is a really good book, and he's a really good reporter. Ryan, thanks so much for being here. So the Supreme Court is looking to review the conviction of Joseph Fisher. Just to inform folks at home, he was charged with multiple crimes related to January 6, including assaulting a police officer, disorderly conduct, and obstruction of congressional proceeding. The court's going to review whether the obstruction law is too broad and whether it can be applied to January 6th cases. So what kind of impact could that have if they find that the the application of the obstruction law is too broad?
17: Really huge, you know, I've spoken with some people inside the Justice Department who are kind of worried about this, right? Like this would affect over 300 cases. And just to give you a sense of the scope of this investigation, when you say Joseph Fisher, a former cop who, was, who assaulted law enforcement officers on January 6th, you actually have to be specific about which Joseph Fisher you're talking about. There are two Joseph Fishers, both of them former cops, both of them accused of assaulting law enforcement officers. One of them <laughs> was from Pennsylvania. He's the guy we're talking about here. The other one is actually a former Boston PD officer. And lo and behold, actually, the way that SLUs identified him in part was because they were looking through footage from the Boston Marathon bombing. And that Joseph Fisher was in the back of a a clip from the Boston Marathon bombing. And the Boston Marathon bombing for the Slews is kind of like this event that is almost a sort of warning sign about how this could go poorly and why it's so important not to put names out there in the public unless you have them 1,000% confirmed, to run these through law enforcement, to work with journalists, not to just throw names out there. So it's this weird thing where it's like there's this tie to the Boston Marathon bombing and like that was the, such a big lesson. That's
0: so interesting, because in 2013, I remember, first of all, the New York Post had to pay a defamation uh, settlement because they put somebody on the cover that they were doing the sleuthing too, and they were wrong. Um, but I remember um, doing a story, uh, and we ended up not airing it for the same exact reason. We didn't know if, they, if these sedition hunters, in this case it was uh, Boston Marathon bomber hunters, uh, were correct. Um, so this was done really spectacularly well. Your book also details some of the interesting ways that the Capitol rioters were tracked down by the sedition hunters, including how one woman set up so-called honey traps on the dating app Bumble. Tell us about that.
17: Yeah, the honey traps were, so a woman uh, who I call Claire in the book basically was sitting at home. She lived in Navy Yard at the time and was seeing a bunch of Trump supporters flow back from the Capitol to a hotel uh, near where she lived at and then saw the FBI asking for help. And she said, okay. Let's get to work. So she fired up Bumble. She had a uh, photo from the Women's March after Donald Trump's inauguration, a protest event. So she's had to switch that, obviously, because that wouldn't line up with what she was going for. She switched her profile to conservative and she got to swiping. She ended up talking to about 12 guys, got three of them to admit they were near the Capitol. And this one guy who they sent in, uh, Andrew Taki, uh, who actually just uh, pleaded guilty the other day, uh, basically said, "I, I was on the front lines. Like, you know, he was talking to a young woman online and couldn't resist sort of bragging about himself so uh, ended up sort of uh, getting himself in trouble there because of her effort.
0: What a, what a patriot that young lady is. <laughs> so the House Republicans say um, that they're going to release all the Capitol uh, Hill security footage from January 6th. Um, and I want you to listen, uh, to, we, we've been told they're going to blur the faces. Um, listen to Congressman Barry Loudermilk explaining why Republicans are going to blur the faces.
4: We also want to protect the privacy of certain individuals, especially those who are innocent, who may have been here at the Capitol. They didn't do anything wrong. So we're taking efforts to, if there's uh, close-ups, external cameras, where you've got some people just standing out there, we want to make sure that they're protected.
17: What do you think? so the video actually even if it's blurred can still be useful to the sleuths because for the most part the cctv footage isn't actually that high quality the best images of these individuals often come from their own footage from the riders themselves who were just filming the crowd outside so you'll go if you go to the you know the database that the sedition hunters have put together it'll show a lot of photos that obviously weren't taken inside the capitol but they found those people inside the cap- Capitol, right? So there'll be a really clear photo taken from an iPhone that may have been snapped at the Trump rally or it may have been snapped outside of the Capitol, but that's the clearest image of it. And it's the one that can really trigger facial recognition matches, which is how a lot of these come to be. But the sleuths don't count on just facial recognition. They need to have some other confirming factor to make sure this is really them, right? So often if you have a pair of people together, that's a really good way to confirm them because, okay, maybe there's a false facial recognition lead, but there's not going to be two of them. Or maybe it's an item of clothing. There are often items of clothing. Thing that were in social media, and then they'll find, say, a pinky ring, right? The same pinky ring mm-hmm. on someone who was inside the Capitol. And up, oh, there it is on their Facebook page. And in addition to the facial recognition match and perhaps some of their social media content about stop the steal, you can pretty much lock it up.
0: It, what is really amazing about the book and also the sedition hunters themselves is uh, the uh, responsible way that so many of them did this. Obviously, there were some bad stories here and there, but generally speaking, people were really responsible. They didn't just go on, on social media and say this guy did it, this guy did it. It, it was a team effort. And, and you, uh, you, you chronicle it uh, fascinatingly. Ryan Riley, uh, the book of Sedition Hunters, How January 6th Broke the Justice System. Uh, it's Christmas. You know, it's a, good, it's a good gift for anybody in your, in your family who loves, I don't know, the United States of America, justice. Ryan Riley, thank you so much. And thank your, your buddies at NBC for letting, uh, letting you off the leash there. Coming up next, what new U.S. intelligence reveals about Hamas and the influence of the terrorist group since its a horrific October 7th attacks? IN OUR 2024 LEAD, THIS LATEST CNN POLL SHOWS FORMER PRESIDENT DONALD TRUMP LEADING IN THE BATTLEGROUND SWING STATE OF MICHIGAN. IT'S A STATE THAT PRESIDENT BIDEN CARRIED IN 2020 AND ONE WHERE TRUMP WON IN 2016. THERE IS TROUBLE BREWING WITHIN THE Michigan's STATE OF MICHIGAN'S REPUBLICAN PARTY, THOUGH. A CNN INVESTIGATION FINDS THAT THE MICHIGAN GOP IS OUT OF MONEY AND ROCKED BY INFIGHTING AND TURMOIL. AND AS CNN'S JASON Carroll HELPS EXPLAIN, Republicans fear that that turmoil could jeopardize their chances in 2024.
13: Michigan is ground
18: zero for the globalist takedown of the United States of America. This is the person some are accusing of being behind the trouble plaguing Michigan's Republican Party. I saw firsthand
16: uh, the systemic election corruption.
18: She's Christina Caramo, former community college professor former poll watcher, election denier and conspiracy theorist, and the current chairperson of the Michigan Republican Party.
0: She's very charismatic. When you hear her speak, she can get a crowd going.
11: She was grassroots. We're grassroots.
18: For a time, Brie Mogenberg and Andy Seabolt were among Karamo's biggest supporters. Now, they are some of her strongest critics, calling for her to be removed from
0: office.
11: I'm sorry because I voted for her.
0: She's losing supporters. I mean, literally hemorrhaging supporters.
18: Another state committee member referred to her in an email as a tyrannical, incompetent dumpster fire. Paramo lacked much political experience, but rose quickly within the state GOP, promoting her steadfast support of Donald Trump and strong Christian beliefs. In 2022, she lost the race to be Michigan's secretary of state, but in February was elected chair of the state's Republican Party. Since then, her critics say the state party has been bogged down with infighting, dysfunction, and according to documents, dismal fundraising. We're bankrupt. It's provable. You're broke. Yeah,
10: correct. Yeah, she ran it into the ground.
18: Warren Carpenter is a former party district chair and former Caramo supporter who shares her election-denying views and conservative values. Her disdain for the establishment and lack of political or business experience was also part of her appeal to her supporters. You understand what some of your critics will say. They'll say, you got what you asked for. This is the person I
4: was wrong. Yeah, full, full stop, I was wrong. I was on her team until I saw the financial situation.
18: Warren shared documents with CNN that appeared to show the party had a net income of about $71,000 between March and November of 2023. Compare that to how much Caramo said she hoped to raise.
11: It will require, I believe, at least $50 million, and I'm very confident that I will be able to raise that.
18: Millions needed and little to show for it. Couple that with what critics call questionable spending decisions, like taking out a $110,000 loan to pay actor Jim Caviezel, who has pushed false QAnon conspiracy theories, to speak at a major event the party hosted in September. The situation so dire, some members of the party's budget committee have resigned. A member warned the party faced imminent default on the line of credit and now worries the dysfunction in Michigan could have broader implications in a state where Trump won in 2016, then flipped, and Biden won in 2020, both by narrow margins. When
0: a state party is falling short on its fundraising, it can have an impact on anybody who's on that ballot, president, senator, mayor, member of Congress. Karamo wouldn't speak to CNN.
17: We come to the table with almost no political experience. And We don't view that as a bad thing.
18: But her deputy chief of staff, Joel Studebaker, and Ken Beyer, a district chairman, say Caramo's critics have not given her a chance. How much have you raised this year? Far less. It's been a challenge. It's been a challenge. How much can you put it?
17: I I don't know the exact dollar amount, but it's, you know, I don't know that it's over a million.
4: She's not a, a business person. We knew that when we elected her. But is that
18: now starting to come back to sort of to bite you because... The business of this is not working, it's failing.
4: What she's doing is she's motivating a bunch of people within the community to get active inside their own neighborhood.
18: Bayer says the Republican establishment set Karamo up to fail by sending their donations to other GOP state organizations.
4: These folks are pulling the rug out from Christina and then blaming her for falling.
18: But Karamo's critics say she's not making enough effort to reach traditional Republicans, arguing she has gone out of her way to alienate them with statements like this.
16: The Michigan Republican Party operates like a political mafia.
18: A conference volunteer list leaked to the press also has not helped. It ranked potential volunteers one to four, one being Patriot to four being Me First or Rhino. State committee member Bree Mogenberg was ranked
11: to four. She's disenfranchising the voters. She's disenfranchised us. And that is not how you build up a team. That is not how you unite the Republican Party. Karamo's
18: detractors took steps to try and remove her from office in this meeting.
4: If they would stand down and and take the energy that they're using to try to destroy us and try to help us with the experience that they have, we'd be unstoppable.
18: Too late for former supporters such as Warren Carpenter.
4: I don't want her to do anything except for resign. And I'll tell you what, if she doesn't, then we'll remove her.
18: Jason Carroll, CNN, Dearborn, Michigan.
0: And our thanks to Jason Carroll and his team for that report. Uh, Let's talk uh, with our panel here, Karen Finney and Ramesh Panuru, about that report and and much more. Uh, Ramesh, uh, your response. I mean, the Michigan Republican Party should be ascendant, but we have seen uh, it's actually uh, in horrible shape.
14: Yeah, you know, um, it's funny when you think about the fact that Trump made these huge inroads for the Republicans in 2016. Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. All three states have Republican parties that are doing worse than when he came around. They're doing worse than they were doing before Trump took office. I don't think that's an accident. I think that shows you something about Trump's effect on the Republican Party, which is on net, it's shrinking it.
0: Well, and just to make an observation, I know this from being from Pennsylvania, uh, it seems as though they're, they're doing the same thing they're doing in Michigan, which is it's not about expanding the party. It is, as you know, it's about shrinking the party. So it's all about Donald Trump and his election lies. That's the main focus and the thesis of the GOP in Pennsylvania and Michigan.
13: Absolutely, and it follows a trend actually that we saw in 2022 where election deniers did not do well in their races. I don't know that putting them in charge of the state party was uh, clearly was not a good idea, particularly to the point that, I mean, there is no plan right now in the Republican Party to expand their base, right? It is all about catering. We're seeing this play itself out in the in the 2024 primary. It's all about catering to that far right wing. The one other thing that, that I'll mention, I mean, as a state party chair, your number one job is to raise money and get resources to your people on the ground. So the fact that you can't even raise money, that is ver- would be very troubling to me if I was still at the DNC. And this should be very troubling to the folks at the office Well, She ran
0: for secretary of state. She got trounced. And she's still, I don't think she's even conceded yet from that race because because she's but she's still I, denying she's the election. an election line. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> I mean. matter.
14: She's not good at counting votes or money. Apparently. Right. There yeah, you apparently.
0: go. Apparently. So uh, let's turn to the, uh, the other subject about a lot of these Trump lawsuits uh, or Trump uh, filings, et cetera, at the Supreme Court. Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis today said more about the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling, which would ban Donald Trump because they say he's an insurrectionist from the state's 2024 ballot. Take a listen.
17: What's keeping a Republican state from saying Biden shouldn't be on the ballot? He let 8 million illegal aliens into this country. Maybe we can say that is an insurrection or rebellion. So what the Colorado court did uh, had no precedent in American history um, and it's not something that's going to be upheld by the Supreme Court. I mean this was one of the
0: precedents people were worried about uh, is that if the Colorado Supreme Court does this regardless of the merits you're going to have things like, you know, I I take the point that DeSantis is making. What's to stop the Texas Supreme Court from, from, well, go ahead. Well, that's
13: a little bit absurd because Joe Biden did not participate in an insurrection. I mean, we've seen overwhelming evidence to the role that uh, former President Trump actually played in the events of January 6th. So it's a little bit of an absurd, typical DeSantis kind of comment. At the same time, you know, Donald Trump engaging in the twenty any election is going to be unprecedented, given what happened during his term, given what happened on January
14: sixth.
0: What do you make What do you make of the Colorado ruling?
14: I think it was an astonishingly reckless ruling, and I think that part of the problem is it doesn't set up limiting principles. Um, so there is, in fact, a question of whether what Trump was engaged in, and engaged in is also a key word in this, right. uh, amounted to an insurrection as the Fourteenth Amendment uses the words insurrection or rebellion. But maybe even more importantly, if you accept this analysis, who makes the judgment? And the judgment's just scattered among election officials, state judges, it's, it's a kind of crazy way to handle this. But I think that's gonna be the way out, right? I mean, because Adam Serwer had a great piece in
13: The Atlantic today sort of making the point that technically if you're an originalist, there's a lot in the way this was written that would say, well, he didn't. if you believe that he engaged in insurrectionist activities, he shouldn't be qualified. At the same time, who decides, the people or the court? We saw what happened in 2000 when the courts got to decide. I think our country is far less stable than we were in 2000. So the court is probably going to is gonna find a way to weave itself out of having to take the decision away from the people.
0: So let's talk about some of the other candidates. We just talked about Trump. We just talked about DeSantis. Nikki Haley, uh, Ramesh, was confronted by a voter in Iowa. Uh, who said Trump is a grave danger to the United States. Take a, take a listen.
10: Well, I want to support you. I also want to hear from you that, that you also think there's a danger here because this is not good for our country and it's not good for the church. And I want to be able to support someone who agrees with that.
14: I I wouldn't be running if I didn't think that he's not the right person at the right time. I have said multiple times, I don't think it's good for the country for Donald Trump to become president again. I've made that very clear.
0: I don't know that that's what he was looking for though.
14: Yeah, she didn't explain why she thinks that Trump is the right person. And I think there's a reason for that. I think that she has been trying to walk a fine line. She's been ramping up the criticism of Trump lately in her run. Of course, prior to her run, she went sort of back and forth on questions related to Trump. But she's been unwilling to, to make that really strong critique. She's actually been tougher in making the argument against DeSantis than against Trump because she's been regarding DeSantis as the near-term challenge she has to overcome.
0: Well, the, the other issue, though, for Nikki Haley is however much she wants to say X, Y, or Z, of the Republican Party likes Donald Trump, even if they don't necessarily want him to be the nominee, he's still very popular among the Republican base.
13: Absolutely, and to the conversation we were just having about the Michigan party, that is the reality that these guys are facing in all of the states, is how do you walk that very fine line? As you know, Jake, I've long said that I think if Nikki Haley could actually get the momentum and keep the momentum, she would be tougher to beat in a general election. You
0: used to say it quietly, but now you say no, it on TV. <laughs>
13: that's not true. I've said <laughs> it, I'll find you the tape. What, what, Sorry, what, no, you've you said you it before, tape. but you used to no, whisper
0: but, but this it to is You used argument, to whisper it. Frankly, it,
13: but. I think this is an argument for Chris Christie galvanizing
14: his support behind her. If I was a Republican, <laughs> that, that would be what I would say. They don't take. even say, DeSantis and Haley don't even say on a consistent basis, Trump lost the 2020 election. I think that's important because it's true but it's also part of the argument for not nominating him and they're just incapable of making it. But they can't make that during the, in, the, in a primary. That's a general election message. Yeah, no one message.
0: ever said running for president it was easy. Yeah. Karen, Ramesh, good to see both of you. Thank you so much. Ahead, the forces behind so many wrongful convictions recently overturned. Stay with us. And we're back with the stunning overturning of a murder conviction in Chicago. A 30-year-old Chicago man, Darian Harris, is now free After the critical revelation that the prosecution's star witness was legally blind, the witness had picked Harris out of a lineup in the days after the deadly shooting. CNN's Josh Campbell takes a look at this case and several other convictions that have been overturned this month with a common theme.
2: Congratulations, right here, sir.
10: Finally made it. Twelve and a half years, I made it. Darian Harris waited more than a decade for this moment. Arrested and accused of fatally shooting a Chicago man at a gas station in 2011, just before graduating high school. The now 30-year-old walked out of Cook County Jail a free man earlier this week. Charges dropped after a new revelation in the case. The prosecution's star witness, who had identified Harris in a lineup, was legally blind. He said
13: that he witnessed the shooting 80 feet away at night. He can't even see 5 feet in front of him.
10: Harris was wrongfully convicted in 2014 and sentenced to 76 years in prison. His attorney tells CNN that a gas station attendant who also witnessed a crime told police at the time that Harris was not the shooter.
2: All of this evidence kind of culminates together to show some of the big problems with eyewitness testimony.
10: Harris is the fourth man to be exonerated in Cook County just this month. James Soto and David Ayala are cousins, wrongfully convicted in the 1981 murder of two Chicago teenagers. They were freed earlier this month after spending 42 years behind bars.
1: I feel uh,
8: excited, elated, uh, exuberant,
1: but as I mentioned before, a bit of righteous anger. It should not have taken 42 years for this to happen.
10: Brian Beals was a college football player in 1988. He was convicted for murdering a six-year-old in Chicago, spending 35 years in prison before walking free.
15: A few weeks ago, I celebrated Thanksgiving with my family for the first time in 25 years.
13: Free man. Yeah.
10: After two and a half decades behind bars, Miguel Solorio is finally home, one of two men in prison for murders that prosecutors in Los Angeles now say they did not commit.
15: I was wrongfully convicted of a murder I had no knowledge of. I was only 19 years old. Delorio
10: was arrested after a 1998 drive-by shooting that killed an elderly woman after being misidentified in a police photo lineup. Also exonerated in Los Angeles, Giovanni Hernandez, arrested for murder in 2006 when he was just 14 years old. A new analysis of Mr. Hernandez's cell phone records by the FBI shows that his phone was not at or near the location of the shooting. I was innocent of this crime. One common theme in at least seven exonerations announced across the country this month, police relying on statements from bystanders, later shown to be faulty and contrary to other facts in the case. We have known that eyewitness identification has been a problem for at least 20 years.
2: Certainly relying on a blind eyewitness is not how justice is supposed to
10: work. With their innocence now declared, those wrongfully imprisoned say they will continue to speak out. I got to be the voice for the people that's being silenced right now. These people that feel like they'll never come home. And Jake, it's important to point out that none of these wrongful convictions came to light because of the work of law enforcement. Rather, because of the work of volunteers and public defenders and nonprofits like the Innocent Projects, which works to ensure that those who are being held in custody are not held unjustly. Now, obviously, the work of law enforcement is critical, but all these cases show that law enforcement officers are not infallible, which is why it's so important to have these outside groups essentially checking the work of the police to ensure that people aren't convicted and sent to jail for crimes But they didn't commit, Jake.
0: Yeah, I know this issue pretty well. In the case of Darian Harris, Josh, how did authorities learn about the faulty witness?
10: You know, this is incredible. I mean, you think about the criminal justice system. In that case, uh, th- this murder took place at a gas station. You had per- someone who worked at the gas station who said it wasn't Darian Harris. Nevertheless, authorities relied on this other witness who was later determined to be legally blind. It was Darian Harris in his jail cell. I talked to him uh, just a couple hours ago. He said that his jail cell mate, who was working to overturn his own case, had learned about the law enough to know that this witness presented a problem. He provided that information to a new set of attorneys. They took took it to the DA. He's now a free man, Jake.
0: All right, Josh Campbell. Thanks so much. We'll be right back. back.
6: Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.